Hello everyone, this is David Tomez of Lawrence Talks. On today's episode, we discuss the broad theme of returning to the classics. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean what Ben Shapiro means in his latest book, The Right Side of History, where he argues in a sort of historical causal explanation that the way that America gets back to its time of prominence is by returning to the Judeo-Christian and Greek principles that made the country the way it is. Is he right about this? Are we really in a time of great strife and bad discourse? We discuss this and more on this episode of Lawrence Talks. We hope you enjoy, and as always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and even SoundCloud, or online at lawrencetalks.org. Again, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Lawrence Talks. Today, we're discussing sort of something we've we've discussed before in a sort of strain of, of our previous conversations, our previous podcasts, um, and namely that sort of the current environment or the current sort of state of affairs of, of public debate and public discourse, and really beyond public debate and public discourse, really just how we treat each other, how we think of each other. And to help us discuss this topic or to sort of pinpoint issues that are at hand, we thought we would focus on a text by uh, conservative podcaster Ben Shapiro, uh, the text being The Right Side of History. Joining me again are Michael Otteson, of, uh, PhD student in philosophy at uh, Kansas, uh, and Dr. Luke Murray of the St. Lawrence Catholic Center. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Glad to be here. Thank you. So as, as I mentioned, uh, we've more or less discussed this topic in, in different ways in previous podcasts, uh, but this text really sort of brings out uh, some of the issues or some of the uh, guiding ideas that, that are at stake in this conversation. But for first, Mike, you, you and I know uh, a little bit about Ben Shapiro. We've, we've talked about him before. Uh, Dr. Luke, I don't know if you are too familiar with some of his work. No, it wasn't until recently when, when you mentioned him and a few other students did as well. Okay. Uh, I heard about some of the, you know, he trying to speak on campus and not being allowed to speak. And I heard about some of that uproar, but wasn't very much in, informed. I didn't know too much about him. Yeah. Mike, I don't know if you could, if you would, could uh, say a little bit more about who Ben Shapiro is and how he's come to sort of be the figure that he is. Yeah. Ben Shapiro uh, is, is, he, he he was really far advanced in his education in terms of, I, I believe he went to college when he was 17, uh, graduated from UCLA, and then went to Harvard Law. And he was writing books back then, uh, kind of uh, conservative commentator, uh, firebrand, I think is, is mm-hmm. the term that gets thrown a lot around in the media. He uh, was friends with Andrew Breitbart and was a writer for Breitbart.com. Andrew Breitbart, I believe, died in 2011 or 2012. uh, And that's when Steve Bannon uh, famously took over Breitbart. Uh, Eventually, uh, Shapiro during the 20... It was either in 2015 or 2016. I can't quite remember when when, uh, Corey Lewandowski, uh, Trump's then campaign manager attacked a reporter from Breitbart, and her name escapes me. Uh, I think her first name is Michelle. I can't remember uh, her. I could be wrong about that. I can't remember her last name, but he physically assaulted her, and Bannon refused to take any sort of action against the Trump campaign or criticize Trump or Lewandowski for doing this. And so Shapiro left Breitbart.com and started his own website called The Daily Wire, and uh, he also started a podcast at that time, and it became, and it has become, I think, the largest conservative podcast uh, in America. Yeah, and, and, well, I don't know if it, yeah, it's either largest or the fastest growing conservative podcast. Yeah, because I that's think right. uh, Rush Limbaugh might still have the, but that's a radio, uh, yeah, okay. n- not a podcast. Sure. Cause, yeah. Okay, because sometimes the you. Those who do radio also have a podcast supplementary. That's so true. Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure what I, I don't know if that's included in in the kind of comparison. Um, okay. okay, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, he's a so he's a fairly prolific writer um, and commentator, um, and so he's he's 
someone worth uh, sort of engaging with uh, for those if for not for any other reason other than I guess that that he's a part of the uh, public discourse in a in a sort of robust robust way. Um, but so the it, it appears that the uh, purpose of his text of the, of his uh, of his book here um, is to explain why we are uh, or how we came to uh, be in the predicament that we are in. Uh, it, it seems like he's trying to uh, sort of paint the current situation as one that we're, uh, where we're losing grasp of national identity, uh, uh, American identity in some way. And he tries to give, I guess, uh, as in our previous conversations, Mike, you, you mentioned as being a historical causal account of how we got where we are. Is that is that right? That's right. Yeah, I think he tries to take a, the, the approach of a, a intellectual history to explain why America became, you know, in his mind, the greatest country in the history of the world, and and then why it's now collapsing. I can, one way we could begin is, is I guess, uh, first talk about initial thoughts about our what he says or what his argument, uh, the proof uh, or evidence he provided for his uh, his arguments or his premises, um, and was he successful? Um, First, what are y'all's initials, initial thoughts about after reading the text? Well, my initial response was that he's a very good writer. He can summarize a lot of intellectual history very quickly uh, in a very easy-to-read manner, and, and I did appreciate that as a student of philosophy, as we all are. At, that's both good, of course, to introduce new people to the field, it, but it does have the danger of oversimplifying things, and I think that that's probably going to be a critique he gets in this book. As I understand it, and you mentioned it, he says that the U.S., despite being the richest and the most comfortable society with the most individual freedoms really ever, uh, he says we're increasingly becoming more angry, depressed, and violent. And I, I understood this to be a reference especially to 2016 with the election of Trump as kicking off or, if you will, really going downhill fast. And so he asked the question, well, why is this? And he looks at uh, what he calls trendy answers. So racism being one, the disparity, socioeconomic disparity in the culture, or the rise of technology. And he says they each have particular merits, but he, he doesn't think it captures really the heart of the problem. And what he says is that it's the rejection of Athens and Jerusalem. And what he means by that is that he argues that Athens, and especially the Greek philosophical tradition, and and its view that we could really know reality, that we could come to what was known as this natural law, that things had a purpose and a telos, and that they could fulfill and be fulfilled and reach beatitude or happiness. So it was that pillar, as well as Judeo-Christian values, especially in the sense that we are created by God, we have an inherent dignity, and therefore we have this inherent purpose in each one of us that isn't given to us by the state, that we can fulfill and find happiness uh, and peace and joy. These two pillars, as I understand it, Athens and Jerusalem, he argues, led to Western civilization and eventually the United States uh, attaining this status as being the most, the most successful. But again, that's a question, what's the standard? It seems to be that we're just the most prosperous, that we have the most individual freedoms. And he attributes this to... Um, the West being founded with these two core pillars, Athens and Jerusalem. So it's a very ambitious claim. I mean, he's really trying to get at, well, what's the problem of everything? Well, he says it's, we've rejected our Judeo-Christian values and, and our, our ability that we think we can know truth like the Greeks did. So I had a lot that I um, sympathized with. In some ways, as a Catholic, relative conservative Catholic, a lot of the ideas weren't new uh, in, when you study intellectual history. So I thought of Gregory Bradley's book, The Unintended Reformation. Uh, there's a book called the Catholic, How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. Uh, we could also look at other intellectual history, Strauss, of course. Um, so I agree in a lot of his ideas. I think it's more of uh, how can we argue or really you know, prove what he's, what he's trying to do, uh, that these ideas led to these behaviors. Um, that's really something that's going to be, that we can discuss, you know, the power of thought. I mean, I do agree, like Aristotle, that human beings act for, for an end or for a purpose, for a telos. And when we don't have that 
recognizable end or we don't think there really does exist an end or a purpose to life, then we're kind of just a ship going nowhere that starts to cause problems for those around us. And so I, I had sympathy for that as, as a Christian, too, when he's talking about the loss of faith. Um, again, I had some problems with his really looking at Christianity through what I would call too Protestant of a lens, emphasizing you know faith uh, a bit too much, and of course the Judeo relationship to Jesus, so Christian-Jewish relations, I think he kind of skirts over that really quick, but I'm just a, a theologian, so... Uh, that kind of bothered me, but it didn't really affect his larger argument. So those are some of my initial thoughts that it was really engaging and well-written, um, but there is a danger to oversimplifying um, um, that we have to be aware of. Right. Yeah. I, I, in, a, in a book like this, it's, it, it's so sweeping that it's, it's, it's I think, and, and I'm sure he would, he would, he would say this, uh, on some level and agree with this, but it's it's impossible for him to adequately characterize any of the philosophers or texts that he considers in this book. Uh, and so it becomes very difficult then to defend the broader, I mean, I mean to, to take it, I mean, we might think of like Copleston's history of Western philosophy and how many volumes that was just as he details uh, you know, the history of Western philosophy. And I think that's, you know, they just give you an idea of how difficult it is to think adequately make this sort of narrative arc. So at some points I, I find myself wondering whether there's even enough, enough in the text to believe or disbelieve because it's, it's, it's too brief. It's to even determine whether or not the characterization is accurate. Um, but I would, I guess, say in broad strokes that I, I am sympathetic to the idea that Judeo-Christian values and Greek philosophy were essential to much of what we now call Western civilization. I don't see a con as much of a continuity between those traditions and the American political founding as Shapiro does. I also think that Shapiro isn't very thoughtful of progressive or left-wing philosophy or politics, and that comes through at many, many points in the text. Um, and, and so those are, I think, some of my initial impressions. I guess in addition to some, some of the substance that is there, the way he characterizes uh, the Jewish tradition, if, if I might be so bold, uh, is, is I'm, I'm, I have some disagreements with. Um, and I, I also, yeah, he, he, I think in, in the case of, I mean, I mean, I do ancient philosophy, but again, I think there's, there's almost too little there for me to say a whole lot about. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, going off of what both of you have said, it was very difficult for me to, I guess, um, evaluate the merits of, of this book, right? It's, it takes on a great deal. Uh, it tries to give a sort of rough and ready uh, analysis or not really so much of analysis as a sort of go, uh, run through of, of uh, the history of ideas is basically what this came out to be like um, and how those ideas uh, could have manifested in certain uh, policies or political actions um, that caused certain calamities in history um, and namely how it's causing the current calamity that we're, that we're currently in. And before we get to sort of, the, I guess, the uh, substantive uh, disagreements or ideas uh, that uh, Shapiro puts forth in his text, we can I think it'd be, uh, we should first focus on the initial uh, claim that we are in such a calamity that we are in a time of uh, great strife and, uh, and great, dis uh, not just, not substantive disagreement, but, uh, but just disagreement about, uh, to the point where we don't want to converse with people. We're uh, losing, our, losing certain friendships because we, we find them no longer, uh, that we can't agree with, since, since we can't agree with those people, uh, we, we no longer find them worth having as friends. 
Um, so could we push back on that sort of claim or that sort of, uh, observe, sort of observation about where we are? Yeah, I've heard a similar argument, uh, especially about violence in society, and, and others would say, well, it's just primarily the availability of media these days and social media. So where we're primarily, we're hearing more about all these atrocities. We're hearing everyone shouting now that we have you know, Facebook and Twitter, whereas before people didn't have these mediums. Um, and so people didn't, maybe they still really did disagree, but people didn't really know it because there wasn't a forum except maybe a newspaper. Um, so I understand that. Um, I think I think, I think I would agree that, yes, I do feel, I mean, again, feelings aren't reality, but it does feel in our current climate that you know, people aren't engaging one another. Um, maybe it's because I, I'm Christian and Judeo-Christian values are, in a sense, leaving, uh, if you will, the, the dominant culture, or at least they're not as politically correct um, as other ideas and topics. And so as a Christian, it, uh, I know a lot of us feel that it does feel like we're being shoved out and so if we bring up certain ideas, we're almost automatically you know, criticized or shot down. Um, but I think there's always been a, a healthy level of debate, even in thoroughly Christian cultures going back you know, in the Middle Ages. Um, so there's always been that disagreement. I think in the past, though, there was, in a sense, what was called orthodoxy, where you had established parameters that were enforced, if you will, by power through especially the Catholic Church, and its prosecution of heresy. Uh, but the church believed that you needed, in a sense, these walls, and that they were not just arbitrary walls or, or power, but they were the walls of a playground that would enable healthy and lively debate, or if you will, children playing within those walls, where you could hash it out. You could have disagreements. You could you could not, in a, not worry about disagreeing, but knowing that there was these parameters and that you had ultimately common ground you were made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, now the history of Christianity and Catholicism is rife with you know, scandals and, and people who acted badly and didn't respect you know, our natural dignity or, if you will, the rules of the game. Um, but as I understand it, and as Shapiro is trying to argue, is that we've lost the walls of the playground, so to speak. We've lost any common ground, at least theoretically, uh, with the loss of Judeo-Christian values. And now it's, it's a free-for-all, and without the Greek logos, which emphasized that, no, we could come to know truth, and therefore we could come to an agreement, without that, we're left with just basically shouting louder than the other person. And in that type of environment, a lot of people who don't naturally like to shout feel like they're just, well, we can't engage now. Right. Um, those are some initial thoughts. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I don't think it'd be controversial at all to say that America was more pol polarized during the Civil War <laughs> and that there was more political violence. Well, yeah, just, uh, I guess to clarify, they, I think people will also say that, I guess this is the most polarized we've been since. Yeah, yeah I, I've heard that from historians too. And I, I, I do want to take that uh, seriously while at the same time recognizing that, of course, there weren't polling you know, Pew and Gallup didn't exist back then. And so I don't know, know exactly how to quantify the level of polarization. Uh, so I do think that this country has experienced periods of great polarization and strife in the past. I, I do see where people are coming from now, though. I do where I mean, w w however justly or uh, in fact unjustly, uh, the the consensus came in the past, right? So so I do think the leaders and and powerful people in this country for a long time had kind of a a Protestant consensus and a white male Protestant consensus. But there was there was and, and of course that was unjust to exclude other people from the conversation. However, I do think in the past because there was a, an underlying agreement as to Protestantism as as a kind of uh, soil from which most American leaders sprang. Again, it didn't work in the Civil War quite the same way. Maybe we can argue that reconciliation was perhaps possible because of that that Protestant soil. 
and certainly America is is more secular than it's ever been before. Uh, if you look at polls of church attendance amongst millennials, uh, it's it's something like 27% is regular church attendance. Lots of people, I think less people are going to church now than any time in the history of America, and there's more religious diversity in America than at any time in its history. And that can, I think, result in a kind of polarization, because if everyone agrees about foundational religious beliefs, um, that can be the basis for perhaps a shared society. And now that we don't have that, I think what's emerged on both the left and the right is not particularly conducive to a shared political community. And and that's a broader conversation as to exactly why, but but in other words, what I'm trying to say is given the ans- the the um, absence of any sort of religious consensus as as to what that that's informing the nature of the American political project. De Tocqueville, of course, talks about this in Democracy in America. Um, we as a country, I think, are having a hard time figuring out what our common values are and how we're going to get along with each other. Uh, and and you know I, I've I've seen people wondering about openly about the prospect of divorce in in some way or another. You know people just throwing up their hands and like I can't have a community with people who so radically disagree with me. So I do think this is a a very uh, kind of fascinating time in American history where where we I, I don't know that we have a a great sense of what our what our shared values should be. Yeah, and I, I, um, Luke, in your answer, you you mentioned two things that that uh, caught you know caught my attention, and one is sort of a, a lighthearted matter. You you mentioned uh, that it feels that we that I guess the, what it our feelings reflect what what Ben Shapiro is trying to trying to say. When uh, and I, I find that uh, interesting for a num- for any reason, but for this. Um, Shapiro is famous for saying uh, the facts don't care about your feelings. And um, so it'd be, it'd be interesting to, uh, because one as as a psychological matter, it's, it's interesting to, to, uh, for me to ponder over whether um, a lot of this uh, perception, whether a lot of this perception is based in, in fact, um, or some of it is actually based in, in feeling um, that it, it's easy for I, I think, or it's understandable for Shapiro to come away with this sort of idea when, uh, after experiencing um, this sort of protest, he's he's been at, at the at the other end of uh, at some of his at some of his talks when people are yelling at you and people are sort of shouting, uh, trying to shout you down, and and trying to really uh, limit uh, your access to to speaking on on a campus. I think it's it's rather understandable if you come away thinking that we are in a terrible time that we're in a sort of difficult uh, difficult time. At, at the same time, you I, I uh, you mentioned uh, or the other thing that you mentioned was a sort of free that is, it seems a little bit as a free for all, and some people have have, have talked about I, I think uh, some figures have discussed uh, that maybe. Part of what we're uh, experiencing right now is a sort of proliferation of of democracy, that just so many more people are are having, uh, or have access to, uh, you know, they have access to YouTube, to Twitter, to Instagram, and where they can make their uh, their um, disagreements or or their their issues known at a greater uh, deg- to a greater degree than than any generation in, in uh, years past. And so really it seems like, or so I think the, the line of that argument is to say that really what it's at issue is um, people have access to, uh, more access to uh, share their, their thoughts and opinions at a greater degree. And, and right now we're in the middle of, of trying to figure out how do we deal with that? Um, how do we deal with people, uh, you know, saying their, because on YouTube and uh, on Twitter you can, Post a post a video and not really care about what, like you'll receive comments, but you don't have to engage with them. You don't have to even you can even on YouTube you could sort of uh, say you don't want any comments on your video, um, and and so 
it seems like people are less willing to, um, uh, and I was having a conversation about, about with a friend about this earlier, uh, this idea that opinions, when, so a lot of people want to say after putting forth a, a, uh, complex or, or, uh, uh, some, a claim that is questionable, they'll say, well, that's just my opinion. Um, and to signal sort of this idea that they don't want too much pushback um, because it, it seems uh, that the opinion that they just shared seems to be uh, a basic, t- they take to be basic, a basic truth that they don't really want to consider to be uh, questioned in any, in any way. Um, but I, I think at the very least, whether you disagree with the characterization of where we are, how we, uh, yeah, just just that characterization. You can, at the very least, say that we're going through some kind of growing pain as a as a community. I think I think Mike, you you mentioned uh, the the more the most uh, I guess salient parts of that is that great deal of of uh, pluralization uh, in in a number of ways. We're secular. We're uh, of different religions. And, and unfortunately, we have to figure out how we live with each other without sort of uh, damaging one's belief systems that they take to be fundamental to their who they are. Um, yeah. No, I think you're, you're definitely right, especially with the availability of this new, just really within the last 10, 15 years, explosion of media and... While that does, in a sense, allow, which is a good thing, many more voices onto the table, into the exchange of ideas, almost it seems like it's not allowing for this long-form discussion because you only get so many characters or you only get you know, so many minutes between you know, posting videos and people just get used to that and therefore they can't sustain their attention. And just a busy the busier it feels like a busier pace of life nowadays no one has time really to dedicate an hour or two or or maybe just ongoing discussion over the weeks like they used to have in the newspapers on a central topic it's just let's just get your points across yeah just my opinion or they'll just state it without any reason and then people are just furious and they just start yelling back and forth i was just discussing this book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, that came out in 2018, and it talks about, well, they argued that one of the things that's hampering our culture and its society is this, what they call this untruth of fragility. Uh, and I, I'm not that familiar with it, but I haven't evaluated it too much. It, they seem to think that, they argue against the view that stress is harmful, mm-hmm. and that People need to be protected, and they say that this is what's really behind these safe spaces on campus when people see ideas as being in and of themselves, you know, harmful, or, you know, and this leads to these trigger, trigger warnings um, and this loss of a distinction between the intention behind something. So it just used to be if you said something, it was unintentional, okay, you didn't mean it, or you'd say sticks and stones, you know, I may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But nowadays... There's, we've lost, it seems like, this general sense of goodwill. And we take even what I would consider harmless phrases as really being a personal attack that shuts down debate and just leads to anger. Um, and so they, I forget the author's names, uh, there's two of them. It was really Jonathan like, Haidt and, and Greg Lukianov, am I right? Yes, that sounds right. They actually argue that, no, as in fact, you know, as a child, individuals, we we need challenges in a sense. We need some types of stress. And yes, you know, if there's mental health issues, you, of course you need to take care. And, you know, and maybe that's what they're, you know, people on campuses are arguing they need. people. There's a lot more mental health issues today. But the university used to be a place where we had these exchange of ideas. And now it's, it's moving away from that ideal as we lose this general sense of goodwill. Um, so I don't know. What do you guys think about that. I mean, we may get off topic too much, but... Yeah, yeah w- w- I mean, I-, I think the way I often see this presented by progressives is that, look, it seemed really nice in American politics when it was just a bunch of straight white men that ran everything. And now, 
that we have far more diversity in the political decision-making apparatus, uh, that's going to mean that uh, previously excluded, marginalized persons uh, are going to have a say, and maybe they don't like the older consensus. Um, and of course, there's it is of course good that I, I mean I think it's good that that we were more inclusive in that regard. The difficulty I think that we have to think about now is how are we going to talk to each other now that. We, we do have these fundamental disagreements and what constitutes harm? Because, of course, these are fraught questions because I know that it's not just liberals that think ideas matter because Ben Shapiro just wrote this book for us explaining how, you know, bad ideas are destroying Western civilization in America. Uh, and I think that becomes a difficult question in a, in a pluralistic society. We have to figure out, okay, what are the ground rules here? What, what, how are we going to determine, determine when somebody is threatened or harmed? Because even those notions, uh, are, are controversial, you know, in their own right. And, and that's, that's what makes this, this project especially difficult is like, okay, well, you know, which political ideas aren't especially fraught, um, that such that if you got them wrong, it wouldn't matter. I don't, I can't think of too many that that's the case. <laughs> um, so how are we going to deal with that, you know, going forward? Because again, it, it's, it's not like, you know, in a certain sense, I sympathize with some of these protesters because they are of course right that language does matter, uh, and ideas do matter and that it has real consequences. I believe that as, as a philosopher and someone who's interested in intellectual history and, and Shapiro believes that. So what, how are we, what are we going to do about that? Um, you know, that, that's a difficult question. Would you still see a distinction between the idea that's put forward and the intention behind it? That's being the, in, the intention behind an idea? Yeah, because it seems like people are confusing the, the, the content of an idea with the supposed ill intent behind it, when in fact a lot of people would say, well, no, we're just, this is just what we, this is my idea. I, I don't mean it to harm you in any way. This is what mm -hmm. I think is true. Well, a lot of people would say, I don't, I don't care what your intention was. Your idea is wrong and it's harmful. Um, but harmful in what way? That's the question. That is the question. Yes, I agree. That's, that's what I think we're having a hard time figuring out as a, as a collective society in, an advan in, in, in a liberal democracy, you know, how mm. this is all going to work, what the, mm. what the bounds are on conversation and, and if conversation can take place at all. Because... Traditionally, it was, in my understanding, an, an idea is harmful if it was false because exactly. it, it yeah. led to bad consequences because our ideas shaped the way we act, the way we acted. And so if, uh, I don't know, I'll give an example, but if some you say something is the case and another person disagrees with it, well, then you can argue it out, try to, you hopefully at least have an idea that you can come to the truth because, yeah, if, you know, if someone holds a belief that, you know, people of a certain skin color are, are necessarily, you know, less qualified to, for a certain job, well, then, yeah, that's harmful. It's harmful because it's not true. <laughs> but it seems like we're, we're really confusing and oftentimes uh, presupposing, yeah, conflating the two. Yeah, I, I guess the uh, one... Um, reason why we would at least try, want to consider intentions um, with uh, someone's ideas or the way, yeah, with whatever, yeah, whatever idea they're trying to push forth is, is sometimes if, if somebody uh, adopts it and, and, and they, with the sort of intention, with a bad intention, like a, a law, like uh, some people want to sort of um, separate the uh, I guess what the law means or what uh, the the words that are used from the intention of of those who passed it from the body that passed it from the governing body that passed it, uh, but that sort of ignores uh, that whatever they intended with the law is going to in part determine how they impose it, how they uh, enforce it, um, and that's in part why it is a tricky. Uh, at least when it comes to laws, um, it's tricky to divorce 
meaning of, of the laws from the intent of the of the, those who pass it because um, in part those intentions may come out in how how they how those laws are are enforced mm-hmm. um, and in, say, I guess same might be the case with ideas is that um, when someone is putting forth an idea they might try to be putting it in such a way uh, that yeah if you just consider the meaning of it it seems harmless um, but if uh, you have to sort of look at uh, the intent, because sometimes the content of, of an idea can include the intent, um, because it could be just that someone is offering in the idea in a sort of uh, as plain or general of a way that it, it seems right, it seems okay, but it's also capturing the, the bad intention that, that they're trying to put forth into it. Now, that's a good point, and I, and I do think it is important to establish some type of friendship where you can show that you have good intentions or at least that you care about their dignity as a human being um, because without that, you're not going to be a sympathetic listener. You're not going you're gonna to lose that initial goodwill, and I think, yeah, that's going to be really harmful to have any, any type of positive conversation. Yeah, um, and I, I think at the, at the very least... Uh, Obviously, because that if we consider the, the who the person is uh, primarily, that's getting close to ad hominem, right? We don't we don't want to simply do that. But um, I think one of the one of the example, examples that was running in my head and in, in, in sort of uh, talking about intentions and, and ideas um, is that some some have argued, um, or it may be something that you can clearly see, is that the uh, the alt-right, uh, one of the things that has allowed them to reach the mainstream is that they're putting forth ideas that seem not that terrible on the face of them, um, but they, cap- they nonetheless capture their intentions um, in terms of separating the, the races or, or um, establishing uh, what they see as, as white superiority in some way. And I think law is, is difficult because it is putting thought into practice, you know, and it, and I think this is getting back to the Shapiro book, it does mean, well, what is the purpose of the individual? What is the purpose of the community? Shapiro argues that you have to have a clear purpose for the individual and for the community, uh, and then both for the individual and the community, the ability to attain that purpose. He says when you don't have those things, that is what leads to personal frustration, unhappiness, wars, and all sorts of problems. And in law, you, in a sense, have to have some idea of the purpose of the community because, well, at least classically, law was the means to help the citizens attain the end which the community was for. So peace, justice, this flourishing. Uh, But when you lose consensus about what the nature of the human person is, when you lose consensus about what's the purpose of the community, you know, is it just to get rich? Is it you know, to establish a society where everyone has access to you know, health care, you know, living? How, you know, what is the purpose of the community? If we don't agree on those, well, then we're going to disagree on the particular laws which were meant to get us there. Um, so it's, it's tough. Yeah, and, and so with that, we can uh, sort of turn our, our attention to, away from, I guess, the, it, evaluating whether we are actually in uh, a time of strife or whether it's unique in some way from any other time. Um, regardless of, of where, where you fall on, that, on, on those two questions, you, there is at least uh, something that we're, our culture or our society is going through um, that needs addressing. Um, at the very least, there there needs to be uh, there's something out, uh, that is happening, and it might be something that's quite necessary. That we need to be in sort of this flux at the moment because we that's how we that's the first step in in uh, figuring things out is having these initial maybe nasty conversations and and bouts, and then over time we start to. Um, uh, figure out that hey, we can't keep doing, can't keep doing those things. Um, hopefully, that's the hope. That is the hope. That is the hope that we eventually figure figure these things out to at least where we can 
talk to one another. Have some sort of agreement. Yeah. If 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 nothing more than agreement about um, how we converse and how we have uh, meaningful conversations with one another, um, because as as Rawls I think mentioned or calls it uh, the sort of um, uh, under or overlapping consensus is uh, unraveling I think uh, to to some degree I think uh, to to Michael's point. Um, and and now we have to figure out how we bring it back to where there's more overlap than than unraveling. Um, yeah. So, hope, but it, so at the very least, we can maybe agree on 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 uh, in some to to some degree uh, that there is something needing to be addressed. Um, now, as for Shapiro's more substantive conversation about how ideas and the change in ideas over time. Uh, have led to where we are, have arguably led to where we are. Um, and so, Mike, Mike uh, if you speak a little bit more about, I guess, how, what you thought of, of uh, the route he took um, and, and, uh, and I guess a little bit more about uh, your thoughts on his characterization of, of some, of the, some of the ideas there. Yeah, Um I guess I had a number of thoughts at, at, at various points in the project. Um, one thing that stands out to me is that I don't see a great deal of continuity between the political thought of Plato and Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, and the American political founding. I think they are far more influenced by Hobbes and Locke and the social contract theory tradition. And of course, you know, I think Rousseau and, and, and Montesquieu and, and some of these other figures that has de- decided the, and this tradition was decidedly breaking with the, the, tradi- the, the Catholic and, and the Greek and the Christian tradition that came before them. Aristotle has this conception of the human telos, uh, what it means to be a human being, and everything about his politics. This is also true for Plato, uh, and and by extension, then Augustine and Aquinas. Every and, and and by that I mean Catholicism. Everything was centered around the human good. This idea, for Aristotle, it's rational activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. I mean. It's almost one of the first things Aristotle says in Nicomachean Ethics is that the duty and the, 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 the function, the purpose of the state is to inculcate virtue and goodness in its citizens. And I don't see any of that referenced in any way in the American Constitution, in the Declaration of Independence. This The system that the framers set up for us is one – is a completely – formal structural one that makes no reference of a substantive conception of the human good. I mean, Shapiro references this. It's just there to, as a way of like limiting power and separating power and adjudicating disputes. And, and I don't know that that's per se incompatible with, um, an Aristotelian tradition. I know that people like to Tocqueville would say that, that it's not, but it's also not, um, in line, I mean, I, I guess what I mean by that is you could make some sort of versatilian argument for the American political project, but you're going to have to go far beyond what the framers said about it. Uh, and 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 again, I, I don't I don't think they're, they they never say anything about prom- the system is there to promote the human good. Maybe it does promote the human good, and that's how you could get. And Aristotelian on board with it, but that's certainly not anything they talk about. Yeah, and you you sort of uh, see this. Um, I guess uh, the the point you're making about what whether the framers actually believed in uh, this sort of project of that or this role of government is that they did their best to limit the power of the government. Actually, very early on, uh, the states had a great deal of power uh, as individual states over over the centralized uh, federal government. And that's what many of the framers, not all of them, obviously there was some disagreement, internal disagreement with the framers. Not, there were the, the Federalists and you had the Anti-Federalists. And um, they were worried about giving too much power 
to the to the federal government. Um, and so they, at the very least, thought it wasn't their uh, ob- the obligation of Congress of the president to uh, sort of the social engineering to uh, make people more virtuous in some way. Because in part. Uh, because there is this uh, skepticism about people in power. Um, I think the framers had this very strong skepticism about when you put uh, people in power, they can do very bad things. Um, and the, I think the, the major claim is absolute power often begets uh, absolute um, corruption. And and so, th- yeah, so you got this, you got this uh, sort of turn away uh, from from that sort of picture. Yeah, I, what I understood uh, when he was talking about the American founding was that it was this interplay between, if you will, the two poles of a bridge, uh, this interplay between the ideas springing from the Judeo-Christian world and the ideas springing from the Greek philosophical tradition and how they were, in a sense, held in tension, um, if you will, in the American founding. So, for example, on, on 89, he says... The notion of all men having equal freedom and independence sprang originally from the biblical notion of man being made in God's image, admixed with the Greek tradition of individual reason, and passed down generation after generation, transmuted over time into the understanding that not not only are human beings made in God's image with will and reason, but with the liberty to exercise that will and reason in accordance with the pursuit of virtue." So was that what I took from this chapter was that it was somewhat the uniqueness of the American system was really balancing uh, these two traditions. And if you lost one or the other, and as he continues with the book and goes on saying we're eventually losing both of these, um, that the safeguards and the success of the, of the founder's vision uh, is threatened. But. Yeah, he he says that. What I don't, what I'm not convinced of, is that he demonstrated that there's any of the Greek tradition in the American political founding. I see. So it's in regards to um, the natural law. Then you're saying that's right. Yeah, it, you know, he does. He's trying to argue that it is. Obviously, we need talks about it on eighty eight to on the natural law. He says the Declaration begins with a ringing statement of authority that of, quote, the laws of nature and of nature's God. He says, this isn't the passivity of Hobbes or Augustine or Luther with regard to the value of the current regime. This is the unification of ancient natural law with the force of biblical drive. Yeah, I was drawn to that passage too because I think that's an equivocation on his part. I, don't, I do not think the framers of the Constitution or the founders were referring to the natural law tradition with that. Lots of people have, in the history of the world have talked about laws of nature. Um, Newton talks about laws of nature. Descartes talks about laws of nature. They are not contiguous with the Aristotelian tradition. Yeah, and I I do think he is trying to simplify the natural law tradition a bit too simply when he talks about, as I understood it, he views the natural law as the ability of human reason to know reality and not just to know reality, but to see that it has a telos and a purpose that can be attained and worked towards. And maybe that, I think that is probably an oversimplification, Uh, but would that be a fair assessment of, is that not from the Greek tradition? I mean, I think it's too broad. I think everybody thinks that we should, I mean, basically everyone until what Kierkegaard thought, we should use human reason to determine what are what we should do with our lives? That's not unique to the Greeks. Um, lots of people believe that it's that's not specific enough to get us to the natural law tradition. Okay, yeah, that's going back to oversimplifying um, and trying to be too general for his audience. Um, I think you. I think people could argue that it was from the Greek tradition, even throughout Western civilization. But you know, who knows? Maybe. It, we can see it in other civilizations or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. A, we can see it in other civilizations. I mean, this is, I guess, if you wanted to impress me with a continuity between one tradition and another, an example of this might be Aquinas. Aquinas is contiguous with Aristotle because he has the same substantive, at least in part, conception of the human good that Aristotle does. 
Aquinas believes that the human good is rational activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. Mm-hmm. He also think there's, thinks there's a theological end that's contemplating God. Aristotle also believes that contemplating God is the best thing, but, but there, that would be an impressive continuity and agreement between two figures. I don't see anywhere in the American founding documents where they say anything like that. Um, yeah, I just, I, I think the, the enlightenment project is, is, doesn't, is not, is, is not on board with this kind of teleological conception of, of the universe, but also, you know, specifically human nature. And, and thus they, they, they just don't talk that way. Um, you know, in many, I mean, of, you know, a, yeah, again, I think Locke is almost a divine voluntarist in the way he talked about natural rights. It's like, oh, God created Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them the earth such that they could extract sustenance from it. And that's the basis for natural rights in Locke. That's not, that's not the Aristotelian, uh, you know, or, or the, the Catholic tradition of, of natural law. No, I think I would agree. I mean, that's the difficulty of his project. He's trying to show how all these different ideas, these different thinkers, in a sense, were in some way responsible to this, this one tradition um, in the Greeks. Yeah, and I think the the uh, separate concern that you can, like, even if you were to agree with uh, that there is some continuity uh, with the, the framers and the, the way that they constructed the United States and its constitution, um, you could... Uh, one other uh, concern or, or criticism you could place is um, perhaps it places too much power on, on ideas. And so the other question you could raise for, for Shapiro is whether he places too much uh, emphasis uh, on just how influential ideas can be on behavior um, and even at a larger scale at raising the... Uh, the success or the the dominance of, of a nation over over other. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting that he mentions Marx. Like Marx would be a classic example of right. somebody who strenuously mm-hmm. disagrees with this. Marx believed that the economic means of production determined the ideas. Old, I mean, that's an oversimplification. Speaking of which, but 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 he believed that the means of production shaped the rest of society and the structure of society. So he would say. If you're analyzing ideas to understand the flow of history, you are doing it wrong. And the reason we moved from feudalism to capitalism wasn't because of some grand idea. It's because we went from an agrarian society to an industrial society, and the means by which we produced goods and services changed drastically, and thus our ideas changed. And that idea has had incredible currency, I think, in the history of Western thought since then. Um you know, another example of, of, you know, not, not substantively the same, but again, there's some, there's some parallels between that and, and someone like Jared Diamond who would say that the climate and the ecology and the distribution of land as opposed to water and all of these other things and where, where, you know, animals and plants exist that could be domesticated. That's what really shapes civil civilizations and societies and cultures. And you're mistaken if you're chasing the ideas. And so that's certainly, I think, the kind of challenge that someone could mount uh, against Shapiro's thesis. And just to clarify the other side, Shapiro's citing the, the classical view that human beings are different from other types of animals because they act for a purpose they act for an end or a goal, or traditional language, a telos. That is, we're not just drawn to our hunger. If we're hungry, yes, we can go get food if we recognize our, that we're hungry. But we could also, in a sense, say, yes, I'm hungry, but I see that I have something more important to do. So I act not just on the basis of instinct, but for a purpose that I can decide freely and rationally. And so a human act was a, an act that was totally free and done out of knowledge for a purpose. And of course, we do, in a sense, non-human acts all the time. When you fall asleep, you know, we have these bodily functions that we don't control. But classically, philosophers would distinguish between those types of actions and an action that was specifically human insofar that it was done for an end. That is, 
was done for some idea, some purpose, um, and therefore it gave a lot of weight to ideas, some would argue too much so. In the Middle Ages with scholasticism, they would work from syllogisms and they would go off authorities and their definitions and they, they weren't getting out there, at least that was the cr criticism that uh, eventually led you know, um, scientists to say, let's get our hands dirty more. And that's not entirely fair of Aristotle or Aquinas because they also said you had to get out there to get data and they didn't have the tools that were later developed. But anyways, I think they always recognized that we were a body and soul unity and that the body and its impulses and its desires did influence and in fact was necessary but there was a strong belief in the power of the mind, the power of ideas, in a sense, over the body and over material factors, which seems to have, have gone away as we lose trust in the power of reason. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's truth to both uh, claims. I think there's uh, uh, things that we could salvage in both of those positions, namely that, that the one where the Marxist, I guess, critique and the, where it says that the material conditions are what drive uh, success and whether some uh, whether a nation is uh, is powerful or not, uh, rather than rather than ideas. And I think there is in part some some truth to the idea or some and some merit to the idea that um, our what we believe and the ideas that we believe uh, can also drive uh, what we do. Um, and in part, that's uh, in part, yeah, that's in part why humans are so are so uh, strong. Uh, I guess successful is that in light of the material conditions of our world, we utilize or one idea is that we utilize belief uh, based decision making to interact with this material these material conditions, and we to sort of um, respond to the ever changing. Uh, conditions of our of our environment that one way we do this efficiently is by forming ideas by saying and when this happens when when these situations happen we're going to appeal to this belief or this decision that we uh, decided in advance um, so we form strong strong beliefs and believe in ideas in part because they're useful in part because they allow us to better uh, wade through the complexities of of our material world um, and so I think there's there's truth to both ideas that uh, yes, it, material conditions are going to affect um, what we think and how we how we interact with the world. At the same time, ideas can do something just as uh, just as powerful and similar as, as simply we're not simply responding uh, in the in that case. We're not simply responding to the material conditions of our world. Yeah, that seems right. It doesn't need to be an either or. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a stronger uh, uh, claim if we or a better claim if we say that if we admit to both the power of both both conditions. Yeah, yeah we traditionally would say we're not angels, we're not pure spirits, we're not pure intellectual beings, but we're or at least traditionally didn't view ourselves as mere animals either. So we're this unique combination uh, in the world or in the. In the universe, the Christian worldview, this this being that's a mixture of matter and spirit, um, but yeah. And at the at the end of Shapiro's text, he he gives a few lessons that uh, he wants to he will he I guess he's going to share to his children, and I guess he thinks that we should adopt in in order to uh, respond to these. Um, to this, the current environment of, of poor public discourse and public debate. Right, he does it um, yeah, on page 215, and it, it really seems like he's, he's trying to help people regain some of the tradition of the Greeks and some of the Judeo-Christian values. So the number one things he starts by telling what he and his wife tell their children every night is that your life has a purpose, um, that you're guided uh, by a higher meaning. Uh, that's, I would argue, from a Judeo-Christian value, maybe you could argue just a theistic value. And then you can do it. That is, you not only have a meaning or a purpose to life, but 
you can attain it. A lot of people feel like, well, they don't. It's hopeless. I'll never, you know, get out of the slums. I'll never get a good job. I'll always be poor, whatever. No, you do have a purpose. You can attain it. Third one is that your civilization is unique. And here he's talking to uh, Western civilization, especially American society, which, again, is a very high view of America. And then fourth uh, and finally, he says the thing that he tells his children every night is that we are all brothers and sisters. He says, quote, we are not enemies if we share a common cause. And our common cause is a civilization replete with purpose, both communal and individual, a civilization that celebrates both individual and communal capacity. If we fight alongside one another rather than against one another, we are stronger but we can only be stronger when we pull in the same direction, when we share the same vision. And so he goes on and basically says we, we need to have this view of at least this human liberty, this freedom. But he also talks about virtue, um, and that's really where the crux is, that we can't agree on what is the purpose you know, of human life, what is the purpose of the community. Um, but that's, I mean, not. I have a lot of sympathy with what he's what he's going with because as a Christian, I do believe in each of those things. I'm not sure about the uniqueness of civilization. I think that other societies, you know, have purpose and meaning. Um, but I do also think that there is something to to say about Western civilization, um, which isn't necessarily you know bigoted of me, but just an awareness of how. Um, the technology and the freedoms and the comforts that we have here are, in a sense, unrivaled. Um, but those are just my thoughts. I don't know what you guys think about these last few suggestions that he ends the book with. My my initial thoughts were, um, I think they, they do a great deal in the service of, I guess, talking about um, ways we should treat each other. Um, and and the way that we should think of ourselves as human uh, as human beings, but I'm wondering if if that will do enough to sort of uh, mitigate that. So that might help us maybe uh, at least come to the table and discuss these very difficult topics with one another. Um, but what it really doesn't get at, unfortunately. And maybe what be maybe more pressing and more uh, concerning is how we deal with substantive uh, disagreements with one another. Um, and at the end of the day, it seems like if if we're having these very strong disagreements about, you know, what path our our society should take, um, what really is our story of uh, human nature or how we how we came to be, um, and really the lives that we should we should live um, or the ends that we should pursue, uh, the decorum is eventually going to maybe go away um, if we can't, if, we, if we're sort of hitting uh, sort of intuition bedrock with one another. Um, and at the end of the day, we're pounding the table with our fists that our way is the best way. And uh, eventually... It seems like, I hope this isn't the case, but the concern is that force in some way is going to be play a factor in who ends up, uh, what or what ideas end up winning out um, if, if we're all so, uh, I guess, um, committed to our own intuitions about what the good life and what, what, right, uh, what, what the right thing to do or what the, what, yeah, what the right thing to do is in any given situation or what our conceptions of the right are. Um, the worry is that this can't be solved by better decorum or better um, think, uh, thinking of each other in a, in a better in a better light, I guess. So that's my worry. Yeah. No, no I think I think Shapiro shares that worry. I think he, I think he makes that pretty clear, especially citing you know, the world wars. But and, and and again, he thinks that we are in a really tipping point, and he doesn't want that violence, as I understood him. Right. Um, but and I think he would agree too that as f- as long as we do think that truth is possible that we can know it and as long as we are still having these discussions uh, that's what I took as kind of the the bedrock takeaway when he's talking about we're all brothers and sisters um, and that we can 
treat each other with respect um, because no one wants just an all-out war. No one wants to just right. resort to blows. At least I hope not. Um, but Unfortunately, I think uh, history is usually uh, tells us that we don't get to that point until after we do mm-hmm. go through war. Um, and that's <laughs> that's the, I guess that's a, the concern. I don't know what, if anything, because right now I guess there's no one single um, uh, issue that, that really that we're really at war with other than um, the makeup of our our social um, maybe ontology with I guess the discussion of um, gender and and what uh, what that means and and uh, so it seems like we're really at fundamental uh, questions here that are that are at stake um, and I don't know or I'm, I guess I'm uh, skeptical of whether these lessons that he offers are are because um, I think most people will agree. It's like, yeah, we should we should hold some of these in, uh, to some certain degree. But what happens when we just fundamentally disagree about um, or so? I guess these these more fundamental questions. I don't know, if Mikey. Had a- yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I have confidence in the power of reason to. Uh, adjudicate these sorts of disputes um you know obviously in practically maybe they won't be resolved but but it, you know i do think there's right answers and we can know what those answers are um but it's of course hard to do this in practice you know when i you know he, he talks about seeing each other as brothers and sisters and i think that's a good but it can be hard to do i mean i i mentioned at the outset you know i don't think he does a good job of uh summarizing or presenting progressive ideas or left-wing politics i think about his kind of discussion of his disagreement with with a trans individual and how this led to you know some sort of altercation and you know i've i've consistently seen his arguments on these things and he has i've never seen any evidence that he has any awareness of the actual theory behind um uh what it means to be trans or anything like that. Again, there are many theories about this. I've never seen any evidence that that he's aware of these sorts of things. Um, and that, I think, in and of itself is a kind of lesson about how we need to be vigilant ourselves to think through and, and try to understand as best we can what other people say. And, and uh, yeah, I think that's something that I have to continually remind myself to do. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's. The, I guess these lessons. I guess what I'm trying to say is they're they're easier said than done. Yeah. And with that, I think um, with at least with the with the book, it raises a great deal of questions and things to for us to to consider and to continually discuss over over a period of time. And I, again, uh, in our conversation here, I think we'll we'll hopefully raise a few questions for for our audience to consider and. And at the very least, we hope hope to show that you know people who disagree in in, in certain ways can still come to uh, form and have a podcast about fundamental questions and um, still walk away as as uh, friends and and peers and amicable amicable uh, peers. With that, gentlemen, Michael, Dr. Luke, thank you for joining me. Those who are listening, see you next time.